Lord, we just rejoice in the work that you're doing by the power of your spirit through the church. Not just here, but Lord, all over this world. Pray for believers, Lord, this morning who are on my heart in other countries who are facing death, who are facing persecution of a very real nature, Lord, who are suffering and dying for your name. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen your church to stand, um, Lord, to be the light and an example of um, prioritizing the things of heaven, the treasures of heaven over the treasures of this earth. Lord, may they inspire us and encourage us to do the same, to value the things of the Spirit more than the things of the flesh. And so, Lord, focus our attention on your word. Focus, God, our eyes upon you, and I pray that you would move in this time. Lord, I do believe that you have something very special to do in this room uh, this morning because something very unique is taking place. Lord, two bodies have gathered in this building this morning, and, and that excites me because, Lord, I'm anticipating something. I'm anticipating you moving in a fresh way. Lord, I'm excited to see you doing something fresh in this region and in this community and on this block. And so, Lord, would you excite us for the things that you're going to do? Lord, may we have anticipation for the movement that you are going to make. And, Lord, I, I ask that none of us would be a hindrance, but we would flow with the movement of your spirit. We pray that you would work in us and, and encourage and build us up from your word as we submit ourselves to it this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church. Let's get to it, huh? First John chapter 3, if you would turn there with me this morning. And as you do so, I'm going to read um, a section of Ephesians 4 to begin our time just to kind of set our eyes on the things that we're going to be talking about. I'm reading from Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, and then we'll get into our study in 1 John chapter 3. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which is interestingly enough, the same place um, that John is writing his letter to in 1 John. So this is the same region of a different times. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, just at the onset, a deep breath. We ask for a focus. We ask for a peace, we ask for a quiet in our own hearts and minds so that we can hear you. Lord, the verse that's been on my heart this morning, be still and know that you are God. Lord, that's our desire to know you. Take us further this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. 
I want to repeat Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Every way is pretty extensive, wouldn't you say? It's every, (laughs) right? Not in one way or in this way or that way, but speaking truth in love, we desire as Christians to grow in every possible way into the likeness of Jesus. We want to be more like Jesus. It's our heart's desire. It's our goal. It's what we're aiming for. A.E. Brooks said this, the test of progress is obedience. The test of progress is obedience. Growing in every way means that we're becoming more obedient to Jesus as we move towards our completion by him, as we talked about last week, as we ended 1 John chapter 2 and began 1 John chapter 3. As John has amplified light, love, truth, core attributes of our lives that are intended to reflect the one who saved us from sin, Jesus, obedience to Christ has been essential and implied throughout the letter. Obedience to Christ, I'll repeat that, has been essential and implied throughout the letter. It's the driving force. We, ha- we must obey. We must walk with the Lord. It's what distinguishes us from the world. And John's going to go deeper and deeper into that as we get more into chapter 3. The litmus test of our maturity, or as Brooke put it, the test of our progress is indeed our obedience to Christ. As we're sanctified by the Spirit and matured throughout our lives, we ought to become more obedient to Him and never more flippant about our sin. Our obedience to Christ should grow. It should get more of a place in our lives. In other words, we should start to see improvement, but in the same, the same way. I think that the closer we get to Christ, the more his light shines on us, the more we see a little bit more of what we actually are, right? If you don't turn the light on, it's hard to see the obstacles. If you don't shed a little light on that dark spot in the closet, you're not really going to see just how dirty it is. That's why I try and keep my wife from shining the light on the top of, you know, whatever piece of woodwork we have in our house, because you know what's up there. Dust. It's funny, I grew up uh, in the desert, and I used to think that we had a lot of dust on things. I don't know what it is with this area, but man, we got dust. We moved from bunnies to elephants. It's crazy. You guys... The more I relationally grow with Jesus, the more I understand how repulsive my sin is, the more his light shines on me. And I tell you this much, the more I want him to deal with what's going on in my life. We should become more and more hungry because we've experienced not his purity alone, but also his grace. We've experienced more of the grace of God. We've experienced more of what he can do with our sin. And so as he reveals it to us, we're like, come on in. I want you to deal with this too. It's a welcome mat for the work of the Spirit in our lives. That obedience is is like a hunger that should grow in us throughout our entire lives because we recognize this. The more I grow relationally with Christ, the more I understand how repulsive my sin is, we recognize something. Jesus, yes, atones for our sin. And as we'll see in our text this morning, he has come to destroy it. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Do we remember that often enough that he came to absolutely pulverize the work of Satan in this world? That Jesus didn't just say, well, I'll I'll just, I'll make it better in a quiet way. He demonstrated the power of God and the absolute destruction of sin on a bloody cross. He did it without any thought of the cost. He felt the weight and he continued to submit himself in obedience to the father. Even in the garden when he says, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, 
not what I want, but what you want. That is the words of obedience. That is the heart and attitude and mind of obedience. In light of his atoning sacrifice, John clarified in 1 John 2, verse 3, this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. In other words, because of what Jesus has done, my obedience should be at the forefront. My walk with him because of how he has worked in my life and accomplished all that he has, this is how we're going to know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The reality of our brokenness is intended to encourage obedience in us. It's meant to work in the positive as it draws us near to the Lord so that we see the great love that we have been given. As, as John said in chapter 3 in the first verse that we studied last week, see the great love of God that we have been called his children. He says, not only called, but you are his children. No matter what you've done, no matter how much you've failed, the work of Christ has made you children of God through believing in faith. Isn't that awesome? You didn't have to find some way to achieve it. You didn't have to find some way to get that work done or to check those boxes. Jesus checked every single box for us. And he says, now believe in me. And when we do, we walk in this obedient way because we love him, not because we have to. It's not something that's being pressed into us. It's something that we're being called to because Christ Jesus has shown us a better way. Our conversion and the thoughts and conversations that we have about Jesus, it concerns me, church, that we we don't value him as we ought to that we make almost a flippant approach to our sin. Even the way that we talk about it, and I say it myself, it convicts me. I'm just kind of struggling with this. No, I'm sinning. I'm disobeying. I'm being disobedient to Jesus. Let's own it. We're not going to be truly healed if we don't own our sin and say this is against Christ. This is against God. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I should stop. Let this thought set us forward on our path this morning, church. Jesus came to destroy sin. When we become aware of it, when we run to him, he cleanses us and we grow in maturity and obedience. This is the call this morning of John, 1 John 3. He continues the thought from verse 3 last week. All of us who look forward to his coming stay ready with the shining purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. Jesus' life is the model for mine, and that's who I want to be. That's the person that I want to look like. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Let's read down through verse 10 this morning. This is our, our point of focus. John continues, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. 
Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. This would be really depressing and kind of a downer if we didn't understand all that we've read thus far in first john and the context with which that he speaks this in we'll open up uh, that discussion and, and unpack that as we go again in verse four john directs the reader's attention to false doctrine that was being taught at their time remember the 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 letters that were being written to the the churches of ephesus here this it matters if we remember the context why john is addressing things the way that he is first of all we've talked about uh, the amplification style of writing that he's using how he's not moving linearly through these texts or through these ideas and these thoughts he's writing in such a way to talk about a topic and then he'll talk about another one as he cycles around he'll return to the topic and he's getting deeper each time he's taking us deeper into the understanding of life and love and truth and all of these types of things but he's addressing in his preaching. He's addressing in his preaching and in his writings to the church the false teaching that was happening by a number of people at the time, but in this passage, the Gnostics. He's addressing the falsities of the Gnostics who were teaching that the body was evil, that there was no harm in satisf satisfying its lust to the full because what happened to it was of zero importance. In other words, the Gnostics and the way that they would apply their theology looks very much like you do you. It looks very much like living your life in whatever way you feel and not submitting yourselves in obedience to what God says, to how God has told you to live your life. Not because he doesn't like you, not because he doesn't want you to have any fun, because he knows what's best for you and we are intrinsically struggling with sin and evil. We are constantly and consistently, consistently, even as believers, in a battle with flesh, are we not? You guys, the Gnostics were teaching falsely the body was evil and you could just do whatever you wanted with it. It sounds a lot like our culture. It sounds a lot like post-truth society, which is just a crazy thing to say aloud, but people actually believe it. A world where what you feel matters more than what's true a world where your emotions and your feelings lead and guide and direct your life church god has shown us through christ how we are to live how we are to walk our lives out sin he says is lawlessness you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there's no sin in him he has shown us what it's like to live in a godly way in a human body. I think of Hebrews, I'm off notes, sorry. Get ready. I think of Hebrews when I read this. In Hebrews chapter four, one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible, at least to me, and I hope it is to you as I share it with you this morning, and many of you will be familiar. In Hebrews chapter four, as the writer of Hebrews is talking about what Jesus has done for us, how he's the great high priest Right? And he's taken us from these comparisons of the Old Testament up to this point saying, you know, look at what happened in the Old Testament. Look at how God worked amongst his people. Look at Moses. Look at all these things that the, the Hebrews would revere and say like, well, we follow Moses. You know, we, we remember the Pharisees saying, we're the sons of Abraham. We're the sons of Moses. You know, like we, we're just keeping the law. The writer of Hebrews draws our attention to Jesus and he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, in case you're wondering, Jesus, the Son of God, 
He puts the spotlight on Christ and he says this, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. If this passage ended there, we might have a problem. If the text ended there and said, he did it perfectly, we might shrink away. We might shrink away from Jesus and be like, I can't do that. There's a separation between myself and Christ. I I can't be like him. He did it perfectly, and he's like, yeah, told you I could do it. Y'all suck. That's not what it says. For any of you who are in a battle with sin, don't miss Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, because of what Jesus did, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. He says, do you know what Jesus did? He opened the way to God, not just so that we could be righteous before him, but so that we could come to him and have relationship. So that when you're broken and you're struggling and you're hurting because you've given into sin and it has absolutely wrecked your life, you could come boldly to the throne room of grace and he will show you mercy there. You guys, to understate it in a massive way, powerful stuff. That's life-changing. Because how many of us know what Romans 8.1 says, that we we are not condemned? Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's no condemnation. Yeah, you're telling me you haven't felt condemned for your sin recently. You haven't felt like you weren't worthy to approach the throne room because of your own personal sin. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus did all of this as our great high priest as the one who is God in human flesh. He understands you. He has been tempted in the same way you've been tempted. He did it perfectly and says, come. Come to me. All you who labor and are weary and are heavy, and I will give you rest. He says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly of heart. You will never find any other deity in the contrivances of men that says, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And the God of the universe in Christ Jesus says, come, come to me. Jesus was revealed so that he might take away sin. There's no sin in him, 1 John 3, 5. Remember what John the Baptist declared about Jesus? In John chapter 1, verse 29, they have a little interaction. The next day, John sees Jesus coming. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pretty significant if you're a Jewish person hearing those words spoken. But look at it at the, almost the very basic. What did John do? Where were the people that were around him looking? As soon as Jesus is on the scene, they're not looking at John anymore. He says, look, there's the Lamb of God. Remember when John's disciples got all worked up? They're like, he is taking followers from you. Do you realize your ministry is shrinking? We may not make the budget. John's like, oh, I am four locusts short. You're right. We need to, I guess we all get half of one today. 
Was he worried about that? He goes, that's how it should be. He must increase. I must decrease. Less of me, more of Jesus. Look at the lamb. Look to Jesus. It's all about him. You guys, look at what the Lamb of God came to do, according to John the Baptist. He takes away the sin of the world. He is removing sin. To sin is to bring back what Jesus came to take away. Address your sin in that way relationally with Christ. When you're in love with Jesus and you're walking with Jesus and you start struggling with sin, you remember how much he loves you and you remember that your sin is to take back what he took away. You are reclaiming sin for yourself that Jesus died to remove from you. If you think about that long enough, it gets really messed up. That I would go reclaim something that he laid his life down to take out of my life. It's idolatry at its worst. And this is what John's trying to get across to the church. No one who lives deeply in Christ makes a practice of sin. No one who lives deeply in Christ makes a practice of sin. None of those who do practice sin have taken a good look at Christ. They've got him all backwards. If we see Jesus for who he truly is, sin becomes repulsive. It becomes disgusting. Anything that's against him becomes horrifying to us. Because we, if we really understand what it means that God became a man and died for our sin, No, none of those who do practice sin have taken a good look at Jesus. They've got him all backwards. John again uses the word remain. Verse 6, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. We know from 1 John 1, 1.8 that we sin. That we still are in a battle with sin. So don't confuse what he means in verse 6 of chapter 3 when he says if we remain, we don't sin. He doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. He doesn't mean that we don't still battle sin right now in this room. This very moment, there could be some of us that are struggling with the sin in our heart and our minds. We may go out today, and and in fact, I'm just going to go ahead and make a, a bold proclamation. Within the next 24 hours, we're all going to sin again. None of us are making a practice of it. In other words, when you are convicted and you become aware, we'll talk about this a little bit more down the line because several times in this text, he talks about you don't sin anymore. And you're like, but I do. Am I not saved? Right? The verbs that he's using are present imperative. It's talking about continuation. It's talking about continually sinning, making a habitual choice to sin. And that's why I look at so many young people over the years as I talk with them, like, listen, God forgives you for sinning. Here's the issue that I have. You are going to sin tonight, and you're making plans to, and you are unrepentant. That concerns me. That concerns me. If you say you're a Christian, say, I'm going to sin tonight, and then don't care. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's what John's warning against here. It's the habitual choosing and continuation of our sin. He means don't make a practice of it. We'll break this down even more in in verse 9, even though I I cheated and got to it early. He continues in verse 7. He calls you little children again. Remember, that's good. It's not a negative. He's not calling you, you know, easy child. It's, It's tender. It's fatherly. Little children, 
Let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous. Not who knows what is right. Did you see that? It's not the one who knows what is right. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Again, think of the same uh, type of language that he's used throughout this letter. It walks in the way that he walks, and it's it's this continual directing of our eyes to Jesus and following his example. And he says, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. I wish I could preach a whole sermon on destruction of the devil's works by the power of Jesus. You might get a little energy out of me. You're like, we already have enough, more than we can handle. Thank you very much. (laughs) I knew I could count on the YWAMers to support my energy. (laughs) Oh, that was you? Oh, yeah. You guys, he beat you to it. Wow. For shame. (laughs) I expect more. You guys, this came to mind this morning as I was praying, and I was thinking about this. Thinking about the one who commits sin is of the devil. It just brought to mind something Jesus said in John chapter 8, in verse 44. Again, sorry guys, this isn't on the slides. (laughs) Poor Trevor in the back is like, Mike's really not sticking to anything today. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says this. You aren't, or uh, sorry, let me me get in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I'm here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? He answers the question, because you cannot listen to my word. Then he says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Now, I don't know if I would open with that when you go street witnessing. (laughs) But... (laughs) But Jesus really doesn't hold back, does he? Think about what John says. Now remember, Gospel of John, he's there. Here he's writing to the churches. All this stuff is there. He remembers what Jesus said. He remembers how Jesus handled things. The one, 1 John 3, 8, who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God is revealed for this purpose, to absolutely wreck, in the modern English, the devil's works. He has wrecked them. And he says, if you continue in sin, if you continue to practice sin, you are of your father, the devil. Just as Jesus told the Pharisees. Now hold up. Hold up. Think about the religious leaders of Jesus' time. Were they seen as sinners by the people? They were seen as the, the holy people, the holy men. Why? Because they knew the scriptures. Did you catch the word I used? They knew them. They didn't live them. If you do it, he says, you must do these things. James says it so clearly in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
You have to do what you know is right. You can't just know it. You can't say, yeah, I, I, I hear what the Bible says. I get it. That's, that's so backwards. I'm in fear of somebody who can brush off what God has said. That scares me. It scares me for their soul. Because John goes through great and continual reminders. Not for people who are like, I made a mistake. He says, if you fall, if you sin, he says, come, confess. He's faithful and just. He'll forgive you. He says that in chapter 1. But he says, if you make a practice of sinning and you have no intention of stopping and it's a habit for you and you don't care about that, you're going to keep doing it. He goes, you cannot practice sin and belong to God. And I'm sorry if that's offensive. You know what? Never mind. I realize that's offensive. That's an offensive message. I am not sorry. We have to hear it. We have to believe what scripture says that we must take sin seriously because Jesus paid too high of a price for us to be comfortable in sin. Amen? He paid too great of a price. God's holiness is accessible through Jesus. And for us to brush that aside is disgusting. Guys, it's a call to the throne room of grace. This ought not make anyone feel rejected or, or, or not wanted by God. You realize that he made the way open for us through Jesus because he loves you. Because he wants you. When I read that passage in James chapter 1 and I read that, that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves, it makes me stop for a minute because so many times we are so focused on not being deceived by the world. What does James warn us about? Don't deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself. Self-deception leaves us without calibration. It's like wandering Mirkwood with no compass, no light. We don't know where we are. Lord of the Rings geeks, where are you at? There you go. You guys, we are calibrated by being led by the compass of God's word, which both guides and lights the path before us. Think of Psalm 119, 105. You know it well. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. The word is not just the lamp for your feet and the light for your path. In order to take steps on that path, in order to go down that path, you must be a doer. It's no good if you shine a flashlight and go, I think I know where it is. All right, let's get going. No, let's stay over here. That's not a relationship with Christ. That's not what it looks like. You have to go down the path. You have to be a doer. And he lights the way for you when you do that. I don't know if you realize this. This just comes to mind. You realize that if you have a, 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 even a powerful flashlight, it kind of runs out of beam after a little while, right? If you want to see where that road goes, you have to keep moving. You have to keep walking. If you want to go where God is going to take you and his word is going to light the way, you are in motion as you walk in the truth of his word throughout your life. You're not sitting still going, oh yeah, I know the way. Show me. I've never been there. Thank you. <laughs> you know, like I, I got to find someone who's going to walk with me there. We have to be doers of what his word has illuminated to not do it is to sin, which is why Jesus looked at the religious leaders and said, you are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil, because you know what the word says and you do not do it. You continue to practice sinfulness. Again, it's the practicing, the one who commits or that word practices sin. 
Verse 8 is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. As image bearers. God created us in his image, right? It's interesting. Man creates things in his own image. You think about what God made as compared to all the false deities of the histories of the world. Think about how God demonstrated his creative ability. He says, I'm going to make a creature that resembles me. And he made human beings. And we failed. We failed. We sinned. But when he initially made us, were we not the way that he intended us to be? Relational, unashamed, pure. In Christ, we're going there again. We're going to be that again. It doesn't end this way. Whatever struggle you have in the, sin, in the flesh that's sinful, that you're wrestling with, that you're having a hard time saying no to, do not forget the hope that is in Christ Jesus, that someday we will be restored. It will be back to the way it should be. Image bearers were reminded that to practice sin, we're exchanging our created purpose to bear something else. To bear the image of the devil who sinned from the beginning is what it looks like for us to live in our sin and our brokenness. We view sin through this lens here in 1 John 3, 8. To live in sin is to reflect the devil. To live in sin is to reflect the devil. He's the adversary to everything that God is. He's the anti-everything that God is. John talked in chapter 2 about antichrists. How there's many of them. False teachers, sinful people that are walking in that. He says, don't be like them. To live or remain in Christ is to reflect the one who delivered the knockout blow to the devil through his death and resurrection. The empty tomb stands as an eternal monument to his victory and ours through him. Why would we ever live in sin when we understand this truth? The son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. That's why he did it. John continues, Last two verses of our study this morning. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Again, we're going to talk about that is not able to sin. Verse 10, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. And oh, Isn't it interesting that he didn't put there some other sin? Maybe the sin that you find the most gross. Notice what he says in verse 10. This just strikes me in this moment. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. He didn't list another sin there. He said being unloving. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who doesn't love. John goes beneath the surface. He points out where the ability to live like Christ comes from. We must be born again. It's almost like he wrote that in John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world. And you're like, yeah, that's right. That's the Nick at night chapter. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And and my favorite joke. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, okay. 
Sounds difficult, right? (laughs) And so Jesus explains it to him. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. We're to be strengthened and guided from within by the Word of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit within us is directly connected to this. We remain in Him as He remains in us. The imagery of His seed remaining is is really powerfully seen and understood, I think, by 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through, 22 excuse me, through 23. Peter writes this, Since you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the last couple of weeks, you could take 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23, and use it as a summation of everything we've studied. It absolutely summarizes and brings all of those aspects together. That's why scripture commenting on scripture, scripture clarifying scripture is such a great way to study the Bible. If you misunderstand, you're like, I, I can't really grasp this. Think about how Peter summarizes it here. He talks about purity, obedience, loving one another, being born again, the imperishable seed. He talks about all of these things that we've seen and says, this is how they all come together. Since you have been purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. In 1 John 3, 9, sin is in the present tense and indicates a habitual action. So we understand that does not sin and not able to sin means does not practice sin and is not able to keep sinning respectively. Because we understand this, that if if he was saying you just don't sin anymore once you become a believer, it, it contradicts what he taught us in chapters one and two. So we understand the tense and the presentness of this. You cannot keep doing these things. It's not something that you go on doing or that you practice. So this is even more challenging for me. This is even more challenging for me in that context. Because when I think about it that way, it helps me to recognize that when there are habits that I have formed around sinful impulses, those have to go. I have to release those. I have to submit those to God. John Barclay said this super well. John is not setting before us a terrifying perfectionism. I was raised in terrifying perfectionism. That's my upbringing. If you want to know more, ask ask to have coffee. We can talk about my terrifying perfectionism, perfectionistic upbringing. Wow, there's a sentence. Mike was raised in terrifying perfection. (laughs) Didn't take. (laughs) Clearly, it didn't take. You guys... That demand of perfectionism is terrifying. And that's not what God's doing to us. That's not what John's doing to us. This is Barclay continues. He is demanding a life which is always on the watch against sin. A life in which sin is not the normal accepted way, but the abnormal moment of defeat. John is not saying that those who abide in God cannot sin, but he is saying that those who abide in God cannot continue to be deliberate sinners. That's good stuff. Church, we are preserved from sin by the indwelling power of the word of God. 
all the more reason for us to follow Paul's encouragement in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Notice the beginning of that verse. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Let the word of God dwell richly within you. The indwelling word. By doing this, we become distinguishable in action from those who are of the world. We follow the devil's sinful example. We're going to be people who continually, habitually sin and are broken. But when we bear God's image and we walk in this way, not only does it change our lives, not only does it revolutionize the things that we, we live out and that we do, we are being sanctified and molded into true image bearers again. That work of sanctification is continuing. John says it so clearly in verse 10, and this is how God's children and devil's children become obvious. He goes, this is how that becomes obvious between the two. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who doesn't love his brother or sister, and he could not have brought it down harder. Jesus taught this lesson to John personally in the upper room. Remember in John 13, 35? He looks at the, uh, the disciples. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the distinguishing mark that I have changed your lives. It's the distinguishing mark of being those who have been sanctified and cleansed by Christ and are walking in a newness of life. It is not enough that we know what the Bible says. It is not enough that we understand what God expects of us or that we understand and know what God expects of others. The visible confirmation of who we belong to is our love for one another. It's how we love each other. It's how we look after each other. That going to be easy? No one's shaking their head, but I will. It's not easy. You're like, oh, it's easy. If it's easy, you're probably not close enough to people. If you think that loving others is no big deal, you're like, I got that. Give me another thing to do. <laughs> I invite you to spend more time with me. <laughs> you guys, it's not easy to love one another. You're going to need the Holy Spirit. You're going to need the seed of God inside of you working. You're going to need the word of God working within you to love each other, to continue to follow Jesus' command. He says, if any man would come after me, you deny yourself first. I don't know about you guys, but denial of self is still something I'm very aware that I'm terrible at. I have to ask God on a daily basis to show me how to deny myself. And then we get to take up our cross. And follow him. Jesus gave us some, some really special things that we get to do together as a family. Uh, Christian, come on up here. As we um, take communion together this morning, I'm going to turn to um, 1 Corinthians. And I just want to read this to you. Because I was listening to a pastor teach this week. Um, at a conference down in Boise, and he was talking about communion. He was talking about the bread and the cup and how for 1,500 years, 
They used to take the, the bread and the cup and they would set it up at the center of the stage. Every service, it was at the center. For 1,500 years of church history, it was at the middle. And then one, one guy came along, one pastor came along, and he set the table off to the side and he put a pulpit in the middle of the stage. And the focus changed from being focused on the body and the blood of Jesus. And it changed to a person. Now, I, I'm, I don't want to like just throw things up here out on a whim and cast this aside and, and make all these changes on you, but that's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea to have the focus on the sacrifice of Christ, on communion being something that is so important because it's the family meal that God gave to the church to share together. And it's so much more than some crackers and juice. Communion is a remembrance. Communion is partaking together in something that has a lot of seriousness to it. There's a lot of sobriety to communion. It's for believers. It's for the body of Christ. It's for the family of God. I grew up taking communion. Taking communion ever since I could remember. But I want to read this to you, and I hope that you guys can hear this with fresh ears. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. By the way, this is very typical for the church in Corinth. For, <laughs> and we're like, ha, oh, those silly Corinthians. Heads up. We can be like them. He says, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper, so one person is hungry, while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? He goes, I do not praise you in this matter. You're like, Mike, this isn't about communion. Oh, yes, it is. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for me or for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're like, oh, let's take communion together. Glory. Do you want to know what Paul says after that? So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him come eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. That means die. If we were properly judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may, be, we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. Welcome one another. If anyone's hungry, you should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Do you realize that when we share communion together, we are welcoming one another? to share in the body and the blood of Jesus.
This is a powerful thing. This is a special thing. There is some mystery to it. There is some reverence to this. Non-denominational, you know, 21st century church. I'm ashamed at how unreverent I've been. I'm ashamed of how much I haven't appreciated the ability to take the body and the blood of Jesus, to put it into my body and to share that with you, to partake of that with you as family. This is exclusive. This is for us. This is something that Jesus established for his followers. And he says it is precious. Paul said, do not do this without taking a close look at yourself. This isn't a time for condemnation. This is a time for introspection. This is a time to remind us that what Jesus did on the cross was so costly that the world turned dark. That a veil that no man could rip was torn from the top to the bottom. And that our high priest himself, God in human flesh, died. And that every crack of the whip on his back as he grabbed on to that post that they would have you hold on to as they whipped you within an inch of your life, he was holding on to die for us. I don't think we would take this so lightly if we were standing there and his blood was spraying on us when they drove those nails through his hands. I don't think we would take this so lightly If we heard him cry out, it is finished. I think we would come with a brokenness and awareness that what he did has not only saved us, but it has made us family. It has made us his body. Let's feed each other. Let's care for each other. Let's bear one another's burdens, not just in thought, in body. Let us be the family of God. This morning, I hope this time of communion is more significant than you've ever experienced, not because of anything I've said, but because the Holy Spirit is stirring you within to remind you that this matters. This is special. It's a special moment. Can I have the group come forward that's going to distribute communion? And what we're going to do is they're going to pass out communion, and we're going to just sing a song for a moment, and then we're going to take it together as a family. But as we do that, let's examine, as Paul called us to, let's examine our hearts. Let's ask the Lord to give us the unity that we've longed for with the church. It begins with us recognizing our own brokenness, recognizing that we failed, but that Jesus has saved us through his sacrifice. Lord, as we take communion this morning, as we distribute this, I just ask that your spirit would convict Our hearts convict me. I thank you that you have convicted me this week of how uncaring I've been as to how powerful this is. Spirit, would you just help us to grasp this mystery of the power of Jesus, what you did? And would you just draw us into this and make us closer and and more unified than we ever have been? Let's examine ourselves as the elements are handed out.